Welcome back, Wildcat, to Dr. D and Dr. Z's Deeper Diving Podcast. Here we are again. We are here to discuss important nursing hacks and patient cases and dive deeper into important and complex topics. And of course, we're here, what? To entertain you and also to help you with these hacks to remember really important things. Call them memory joggers, whatever it is for you. But man, what a hot summer. It's been a crazy hot summer. Oh my gosh. And it's just not us. Like the whole, everybody in the United States is like, oh my gosh, I can't even breathe. Everywhere. You know, I was driving in today and I looked up at Mount Hood and I was like, where's all the snow? I know. There's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So it, I went to California and Colorado recently and it was cooler there than in Portland. My son was like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I'm like, it's called air conditioning. You put it on, you'll be okay. So I'm excited today because we're hitting a milestone. Yes, we are. Episode 10. Yeah, and really, it was July of last year that we sat with Dean Smith and did our Kaplan discussion. So it's been a year. That's crazy. I know. So we're, we're launching into our second year. And that means, Wildcats, that there are nine other episodes for you to listen to if you haven't already. It's going to help you on your exams. We've heard from our transition class. We've heard from fundamentals. So we know it's working. And it's also here to support you as you head into taking that in class. And, you know, I met with actually somebody who's already a nurse in practice and she had listened to it and she was like, hey, you know what, it was really great to listen to because they were really good reminders of things that I had forgotten or things that like, oh, right, I do need to be thinking about that when I take care of patients. So it's good for everybody. Right. So this will be really good. I think for a lot of our nurses in practice, even if you're not in the ICU, right? That doesn't mean that you can't see a patient that comes in in some kind of septic shock. That's right. So here this month, we're gonna be talking about shock, really specifically kind of a septic shock. And we have our Associate Dean, VIP, Dr. Julie Fitzwater with us today, who's our expert in critical care and of course shock, who's gonna help lead us in our discussion today. So I'm gonna pass the baton or the mic to, to Dr. Fitzwater to introduce herself. Thank you, thank you for inviting me to your excellent podcast. I am Dr. Julie Fitzwater. I taught a lot in acute care in the past and took care of a lot of patients and many different kinds of shock. But this is how I always start my PowerPoint voiceover. Doom, 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 shock. Yeah, that's how I feel about it too. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) It can be scary, but we're gonna give you some tips today on how to recognize early in your patients to save them from having dire consequences. How long have you been at Linfield now? I've been teaching full-time at Linfield since 2014. I was an adjunct before that. Mm -hmm. Wow, almost 10 years. Yeah, that's when I retired from the bedside when I was giving report to my former students and getting report from my former students. Wow. Figured you all had it. (laughs) That is awesome. That is awesome. So we are so excited that you are our very important podcaster this month. Yes, so thank you for being here. We are excited to have you. And why don't we take this moment and just jump right into our clinical moment oh, section. Oh gosh, yep. So um, we have a couple of septic shock cases that we wanted to talk about today, um, which ended up being 
dire for the patients um, and also cause some pretty catastrophic lawsuits to the providers and the institutions um, and resulted in like millions of dollars worth so of, costly uh, yeah i mean just lots of money spent on these horrible cases that really could have been prevented i didn't know there were so many lawsuits it's crazy when you start looking all right uh before we get started on our cases though uh, Dr. Fitzwater, do you have some statistics or some information that you wanted to share about uh, septic shock? Yes, from the World Health Organization. Oh, estimated in 2017, 48.9 million cases wow. and 11 million sepsis-related deaths worldwide. That's almost 20% of all global deaths. Wow, that's a big chunk. Yeah, and half of all global sepsis cases occurred among children. What? So under five years of age, recognizing signs and symptoms of shock can be important. Yeah. There are also regional disparities in sepsis and mortality. 85% of sepsis cases and sepsis-related deaths worldwide occurred in low and middle-income countries. Hmm. I believe that. I believe that too. And we've all heard about healthcare-associated infections, oh. one of the most frequent types of adverse events to occur during delivery of care. It affects hundreds of millions of patients worldwide every year. And that's why we say nurses wash their hands, oh, right? Kidding. That's right. It's number one way. Number one. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Hygiene. Hand hygiene, people. Well, that certainly supports the, the couple of um, sepsis lawsuits that we're going to talk about. But my goodness, there are thousands of cases out there. When I was doing the deep dive into this, I was like, wow, with the average payout, from a quarter of a million to a half a million dollars per case and more if the person dies, that's if you live, right? So it's gonna be even more money for the institution uh, if the patient actually dies. So my brother, he's a lawyer out of Boston, stated that these are shut and closed cases. If they can find something where we miss the signs and symptoms, then that, that becomes upon us. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have Dr. Fitzwater here today to break all this sepsis stuff down for us. So let's talk about those cases. All right, so let me give you a brief summary of the case. So our okay. first case uh, was with a family nurse practitioner. Okay. Um, and unfortunately resulted in the death of a 33-year-old female mother mm -hmm. of two young children um, who had septic shock and ended up passing away. At 33? 33, can you believe it? No, what happened? So here's a story. Uh, and what's always shocking to me is the sh incredibly short time frame that all of this really occurs in. So we patient comes in day one, um, comes in for a potential skin infection. Healthy female, um, she had some discomfort, a couple of rash areas in her groin uh, and her labial area um, with some progressing pain, had some burning while she was voiding, things along those lines. When she came in, she was afebrile, no, temp no elevated temperature, but she had a documented heart rate of 136. Well, that's a little high. That's high, yeah. But blood pressure normal, 116 over 72, temp 99.8. The FNP had a collaborating physician come in and examine the patient also just for kind of confirmation. They together decided that uh, the patient had a bacterial vaginosis with a possible herpes simplex infection skin rash. So they took some cultures, 
gave her some antiviral medications, some antifungal medications, and sent her home. Follow okay. up 48, 72 hours if it's not improving. Okay. Okay, so the next day, patient has a fever, didn't go to work, wasn't feeling well. Uh, husband was like, hey, you should go to the ER. She said, no, we have nobody to watch the kids. Uh, and then the next morning, 2.30 in the Two thirty in the morning, husband ends up taking her into the ER. Numbness all over her body, slowed, slurred speech, dysuria, chills, weakness, fatigue. Those same lesions had rapidly grown, so they're warm, red, swollen, significantly larger. She ended up being admitted to the ICU uh, with sepsis. Uh, she was severely hypotensive, tachycardic. Blood glucose was fifty-four, white count of fifteen, hemoglobin of six point eight. Uh, she had a cold blood. They ordered packer blood cells. Uh, later that day, the culture, skin cultures that they took in the office came back as negative. Uh, so she ended up going for a wound debridement um, to surgically debride mm -hmm. the area because it had continued to grow. <clears throat> and um, they found that the infection went further down into the subcutaneous tissue um, and into the musculature of her thigh. She was seen by infectious disease, uh, who noticed she was in septic shock, she was on multiple vasopressors, mm -hmm. antibiotics, IV antibiotics, and she was continuing to deteriorate. She ended up on renal replacement therapy, she was severely metabolic, she had a severe metabolic acidosis. Um, later that day, she ended up um, in PEA, Oh. and cardiac arrest and was unable to be resuscitated. Um, oh. So the autopsy showed that she had toxic toxic shock syndrome with DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, and sepsis uh, from a group A strep, uh, which started from those small rashes. What is your thought on that? What, why did that go bad so fast? Yeah, well, septic shock can happen quickly, and they told her to come back if things weren't improving, and she really did need to go into the ER. Once she has slow, slurred speech, means it is affecting perfusion to the brain, which means you're, when we talk about the stages of shock, it means you're out of compensatory shock. Your body's not compensating anymore. And so that, it can be hard to reverse. Looking at her signs and symptoms, um, Dr. Fitzwater, was she in the initial stages of shock when she came in? Well, we usually, um, for septic shock, talk about um, are they in systemic inflammatory um, response. response syndrome? So do they have a, a two or more SIRS criteria to um, a diagnose septic shock? She didn't have a fever. She really was just tachycardic and had potential infection. Right. So they did, you know, took cultures as you would expect um, and started what they thought would be um, antifungals and antiviral, but she really needed antibiotics. Especially they that didn't next, know it yet. Right, and especially that next day when she spiked the fever mm -hmm. and didn't go in, right. probably would have been a good time to intervene. Because frequently it's those bacterial infections that are gonna spike the fever really well. Terrible. And it happened so quickly. That's what's so like. So they there was a payout from this case. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it was what, settled out of court. What did the family nurse practitioner miss? Well, I, I think they settled out of court. So there, I think there was some competing 
um, arguments about what was missed or not missed. Right. And I think the big thing that was really pointed out was that in that initial visit, the heart rate of 136. Mm, gotcha. And so okay, yeah. um, the FNP said that, you know, there was the documented heart rate and that her thought or the FNP's thought was that it was actually a nursing error because I guess there had been some other heart rate nursing errors made oh, on other patients. So why um, do we only have one reading? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It's and, that abnormal. Take it again. Right. And I, I guess she had had that conversation with the patient, but didn't document that conversation. So while the FNP said, I recognized the heart rate and we talked about the heart rate, but didn't document that. Wow. That is interesting. What about the second case? Okay, so the second case, it was another sort of untreated sepsis case that rapidly progressed. Day one, 36-year-old female came into the PC, into their PCP. Blood pressure was low, 60 <laughs> over 40. They walked in? Yeah, I know. I, I saw that. I was like, what? So 60 over 40, temp of 96.3, heart rate 116. And the documentation said that the patient was ill-appearing. They were pale and the diagnosis was basically that the patient was dehydrated. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, right. so gave her fluids, send her home, call if you don't get better. Day two, next day, morning, patient had a, described a chronic cough with yellow sputum, chest pain from coughing that wasn't relieved by medications, and an ongoing headache. The same PCP called the prescription in for cough medication right, to help relieve the cough, but didn't really do anything else. And this was from a phone call that the patient had called. 3 p.m., patient called back, trouble breathing. Um, spoke to the same triage nurse, uh, but apparently, as it's been documented, uh, the nurse didn't instruct the patient to come in to be seen again or to go to the ER and didn't tell the PCP, but as a, uh, rather scheduled her for an appointment the next day oh. as a follow-up. Right. Ooh. So the next day, husband took, takes the patient to the ER, extremely short of breath, disoriented, diagnosed with bilateral pneumonia. And the next day, the patient died. Okay, I'm gonna take a, I'm gonna take back my comment earlier that oh that's good. It gave her fluid and that was good, and then she went home. That initial blood pressure that's pretty, pretty low yeah. for Super a walker low. talker. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And so students out there, the first thing you think of when someone has actual colored sputum, you want to culture it, right? right. You got to do something about right. it. And um, I can imagine, we don't have any labs on this patient, but I imagine they were in severe metabolic acidosis. And with any kind of uh, infection that's going to lead to sepsis, when we're in acidosis, no matter how much oxygen we give someone, they're not going to perfuse because that acidosis um, changes the way your hemoglobin is able to pick up and drop off oxygen. So you can give them all the oxygen you want, but they are not gonna perfuse if they're in acidosis. And so that's really hard to reverse sometimes when someone gets so ill. Wow, four yeah. days. Last case, that's what, nice. that was just a few days too. Yeah. Is nice. that what you used to see in the unit when they would come in? Uh, people ending up on the ventilator from septic shock, yeah. So, and actually when I, I didn't learn a lot about sepsis bundles when I was in nursing school, it was about when I was starting practice, 
that we were doing all of this awareness mm -hmm. um, throughout um, yeah. the hospital system so that we knew what to look for and when to call a provider to alert them to start the sepsis bundles, to start the cultures, to start the antibiotics. Very important. Yeah, so I know we all want to avoid lawsuits, but really we're here because we want to be able to take care of our patients and make sure that they have really good outcomes. Um, you know, I also spent a lot of my bedside career in the ICU, so lots of shock and sepsis and a lot of it related to trauma stuff. But, um, you know, uh, it's crazy, you know, and um, I have a good appreciation for how devastating uh, it, sepsis can really be. So um, let's move right into kind of just talking about sepsis and shock, uh, because that's what we're here. Like we got to figure out what are those big things that we need to be concerned about. So let's just start off with a quick definition, kind of general definition of shock. We know there are four types of shock cardiogenic, hypovolemic, distributive, and septic. It's characterized uh, by decreased tissue perfusion and impaired cellular metabolism, which creates an imbalance between supply and demand of oxygen and nutrients, which often leads to ischemia, cellular injury, and then ultimately, sadly, death. So Dr. Fitzwater, uh, can you help describe this whole shock thing? Kind of lead us through an understanding of the phases and stages of shock so we can drill it down? Sure. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, your body is, of course, compensating. You go, your sympathetic nervous system is revving up to really help you survive. And so we want to identify it early, of course. Um, in cardiogenic shock, it's all a pump thing. You gotta take care of the heart um, because you can't fix it with anything else if the heart isn't pumping appropriately. But hypovolemic and distributive and septic are gonna look similar. We wanna know what is the core cause. Um, hypovolemic can be severe dehydration, but it's also hemorrhagic. So when you have anything, you know, across the board, any different ways, trauma, bleeding, postpartum hemorrhages, all of those can lead to shock. So nurses in all different kinds of um, care, variety of care settings need to understand what it looks like. Because these cases that we were talking about were people coming into the clinic and the ED, but we also inpatient are gonna see um, post-septic, we're gonna see post-surgical shock. And really important to be able to recognize that. And that's why we do vitals so often. That's right. That's why we <laughs> talk to our patients and assess their neurostatus. Because most importantly, when we go into um, no longer compensating and we're um, no longer perfusing, the first things we're gonna see is lack of kidney function and mental status changes. So changes in level of consciousness and decreased urinary output or dark urine, these are the things that tell us our patient's going down that path. Wow. So can we um, break these down into like, stages like the initial stage of shock what would that look like yeah so if we're talking about septic shock we're gonna have someone who has a fever because septic is related to an infection somewhere in the body and that's why we do pan cultures if we don't know where it's coming from we search for it we're gonna find it we're gonna get sputum cultures we're gonna get um uh, 
we're going to check and see if it's a UTI. Sometimes that's what's going on. Um, and if we have uh, skin lesions, like was happening with this other um, patient that we talked about, we want to make sure we're getting cultures there and identifying exactly what it is. So our, when we look at labs, um, we will probably see some high white blood cell counts. Okay. And right. not only that, if you remember your pathophys, um, you're going to see increased bands, which are those immature white blood cells being pushed out, trying to fight off the infection. They don't have time to grow up. Oh, oh, no. the poor <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen them pushed out too well before they're ready. How is the patient going to present in that stage mm -hmm. of shock initially? Low blood pressures. Okay. And they are going to feel sick. They're going to look pale. They might be um, sweaty, um, that kind of thing. Uh, they definitely is a difference between someone like has a cold or has a flu. And then when they actually go into shock, this is I have no energy to even drag myself out of this chair or drive myself to the ED. Okay. They're going to be very excellent. So if we're doing, like if we take vitals on somebody in like this initial stage, might we see like slightly elevated vitals, like slight, like slight tachycardia or tachypnea or things along those lines, or are those going to be normal? And it depends on the person. Okay. So we have a wide range of, you know, young people are going to react with super high heart rates and super high fevers. But then an older person, you might not see a temperature rise, even though they have an infection. We see that a lot in UTIs and older folks coming in when they're really sick and they really aren't spiking a fever. So it can depend. Yeah. Wow. And it looks like at the initial stage, things are kind of mild. So you could mm -hmm. definitely think it's something else, something else. Yep. for sure. Yeah. Um, how about the urine output in the initial stage? Are still going on pretty good during that stage? I know nothing about shock. I'm learning with you. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> Sarah, so, who comes you know to the OR when the, they're in shock? Nobody. The sympathetic <laughs> nervous system is, is pushing all of perfusion into your vital organs. So that's when okay. you're still compensating. Yeah. All right. So. So let's move on to the second stage, the next stage, right? Which is what she was just saying. Yeah, compensatory, compensatory stage, stage right? Yeah. So increased heart rate looks like vasoconstriction, mm -hmm. increase that respiratory rate, especially I would imagine the more you get acidotic, that's all going to play a factor there. Ooh, increased glucose. Yeah. Oh no! She loves this. <laughs> she does. Doctor Fitzwater loves this. So why do they have a rise in glucose? It's not like they're eating anything. No, we see this all the time in our trauma patients um, that they are going to have an increased blood glucose just from the stress in the body, the stress of their illness, the stress of their accident, whatever's going on. All that cortisol. Mm -hmm. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Glyconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is where they'll have a decreased urine output, decreased bowel sound. So everything kind of starts to shut down as a heart tacks along and... Well, I always like to connect it to things, right? So if we, if this, this stage where we really start to see that vasoconstriction, right? So we're gonna... It, shunt blood to the vital organs, okay, right? Makes and sense. we know that kidneys, while we think they're vital, the body doesn't really think they are. So vasoconstrict to the kidneys, kidneys get decreased blood flow, decreased urine output.
vasoconstriction to the skin, right? So if we're not, if little, less blood to the skin, what are we gonna see? Pale, decreased model, model possibly cool cool, extremities, uh, decreased capillary refill or increased, prolonged capillary. <laughs> As my favorite advanced patho professor <laughs> um, said to me at OHSU, and she would always talk about the dinosaurs after you. What do you need to do? Do you need to digest your food? No. So you're going to be shunted away from the intestines. And right. then a lot of times I've taken care of patients who had severe shock who ended up with um, decreased perfusion to their intestines, ended yeah. up with a perforation, yeah. ischemic bowel. Really oh, scary just another problem. From that severe vasoconstriction. That's yeah. terrible. And then you add vasopressors on that. <laughs> to keep them alive. <laughs> so we talk about the stages of what we need to be doing at this time. We talked about cultures. We talked about getting fluids to help with the blood pressure. You always fill the tanks with fluids before you go to the vasopressors. Mm -hmm. really That's key. Concept. Just like we talked about getting the cultures before you start the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, right? Very so important. You might get all of those orders at once to put into play, but you need to know what needs to come first. Perfect. Nursing clinical judgment comes into play. Yes, <laughs> clinical judgment model. All right, what about the progressive stage? This is where progressive shock seems a little scary. Right, this is where we start to really kind of see some of the scary signs. They're pretty bad by now, right? Yeah. So you're getting to a point where you've given a lot of fluids and you've started the antibiotics, but they still have a really low blood pressure. Um, you might have to start a second vasopressor trying to keep their um, body perfusing get that blood pressure up. How long can they be on the vasopressors before they start losing all their... I mean, fingers and toes? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it can look really bad. And sometimes it's about amount, like how high the dosage is too. Vasopressors, yeah. wow. you have to titrate up slowly, titrate down slowly. I've seen someone be on pressors for two weeks and when they make it, they actually um, have, they lose some of their fingers and toes because wow. of that severe vasoconstriction. It was keeping them alive and keeping their blood pressure up, but they weren't getting perfusion to their like ends of their extremities. It's very sad. Wow. So, Progressive, their level of consciousness, are they with it at this point? They're usually pretty altered, disoriented, mm -hmm. confused, restless, agitated. Yeah. Continue tachycardia, decrease urine output, poor skin perfusion. My goodness. Yeah. All those things with the lactic acidosis and um, increased work of breathing because you're not getting perfused. So typically um, in acidosis, when you're um, your uh, hemoglobin, your hemoglobin is going through <laughs> universal sign <laughs> for hemoglobin. <laughs> when your hemoglobin is going is in acidosis, what's happening is it is letting go of all the oxygen down in the tissues. It's like, oh, we need to perfuse. We don't have enough perfusion, so it keeps letting go of it. When it's in acidosis, it stays in the let go phase. Comes oh. back up to the lungs and it's not picking up the oxygen. So you have to reverse the acidosis in order to increase perfusion and, and get the hemoglobin to pick up the oxygen and let it off again. We just love the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve. Right? And like, <laughs> I try to say it sometimes, but then everyone, you know, their eyes yeah, glaze over. Yeah. <laughs> the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is really important Very to important. understand in shock. Yeah, it 
helps you understand why you're giving your patient oxygen and what they need and um, they still are not, they're pale, they're blue. Ischemic. Yeah. 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 So I guess the final stage. This is not the good stage. It's, oh. it's got a bad word too. Refractory. Refractory. Yeah, so the final stage of shock is refractory shock. I hate the way that sounds. Well, it sounds bad and also is bad because it really <laughs> means that like you can't turn it around once um, you get here. Uh, so what what does the patient look like in this stage? Bad. This final stage. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no urine output. Level of consciousness is decreased. Well, respiration is going to be pretty high, usually about 35. It's just going to be like a cold, mottled skin, yep. continued low O2 size, hypotension, despite vasopressors, despite fluids, despite all that stuff. Yeah. So. Circle in the drain. Circle in the drain. My goodness, this is a complicated disease process. So I have to ask you a favor because I had to really like kind of flush this out when I was teaching it with acute. I'm like, oh my God, there's shock and then there's septic shock and then there's sepsis. So if you could just kind of tell us what exactly is septic shock. Sure. Clarify that for Here me. Because it's like, I thought it was all the same. It's not. <laughs> So sepsis is a clinical syndrome. Um, it causes life-threatening organ dysfunction because we have this dysregulated response to infection. In septic shock, there's that critical reduction in tissue perfusion. That's number one, that shock everywhere is okay. tissue perfusion problems. But the reason that septic shock is causing tissue perfusion is that immune response. You have an acute failure of multiple organs, including lungs, kidneys, liver, everything is shutting down. Your body is desperately trying to shunt to the most vital organs. And unless we stop it early, um, we can get into that horrible um, refractory stage. So the patho of sepsis, it evolves. And um, inside our bodies, we have any kind of microorganism invading. Um, it's causing the tissues to have an immune response. You're gonna have biochemical cytokines, oh, mediators cytokine associated with inflammatory responses. And as we all know, this is gonna to lead to capillary permeability, leaking everything out. Um, so we have um, the body isn't able to do adequate perfusion, oxygenation, or get nutrients to the tissues and cells because we're really into a massive inflammatory response, anti-inflammatory cytokines are released to try to help. And this activates, remember, anything that leaks out of our blood vessels is gonna cause a coagulation response. Mm -hmm. Anytime our blood is touching anything outside the inside of the vessels, we have the coagulation cascade happening. Mm. So we're She's gonna- so smart. I know, DIC. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here like, yes. like I'm a student. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we have these clots, when there isn't any bleeding, everything's going rogue and everything is causing everything else to go rogue. So the imbalance of this inflammatory response, along with the clotting, that then your body's trying to break down the clots, oh God. leading to the DIC. Yes. So mm -hmm. this physiologic progression in sepsis is really, really serious. Wow. So are there particular populations of people that are at greater risk for developing sepsis or septic shock? Sure, there, um, it can be elderly patients who are not having um, as uh, robust and 
in their aging immune system, their physiological res reserves are really low. So this is when we see some elderly patient with maybe a UTI coming into the ED and they are just going down really fast. They can't get their blood pressure up, need to get a central lining quickly, that kind of thing. Um, we have a lot of gram-positive bacteria, and this is where I always worry about not having antibiotics that work. Mm -hmm. So resistance to antibiotics can be a big part of it. So it depends on what your infection right. is. Yeah. That's, um, that's really scary. And that's also why it's really important to get that culture before you start the antibiotics so yes. that you know yes. what's oh, growing yeah. and what will kill it. Exactly. Yeah. And when we were talking about one of those cases when they said infectious disease was involved, we frequently would have a consult with infectious disease to make sure we were using the right antibiotic. Yeah, that's yeah. so important. It looks like other risk factors maybe could be malnourishment, chronic illness, invasive procedures. Yeah. Wow. We need a hack. We do <laughs> need a hack. So this is our the first NCLEX hack of the episode. And this hack is going to help us remember the signs and symptoms that are associated with septic shock. Mm -hmm. And the hack is cord item. Cord, like C-H-O-R-D. Yeah. Does this strike a chord with you? Oh, I love that. Go. There we go. You're going to strum a chord on your guitar, like a yeah, music thing. Exactly. So let's break it down a little okay. bit. So I'm just going to go through what each letter means in this acronym, and then we'll kind of describe them, each one a little okay. bit. So, um, court hack, uh, we have C, cold skin, H, hypotension, O, oluria, R, rapid or shallow breathing, and D, drowsiness. So that spells cord. And then we have item, I, irritability, T, tachycardia, E, elevated or reduced CBP, and M, Mods. That cannot be good. That's the most. Ooh. Sorry. So our central venous pressure is just that we are severely dehydrated when it's low. Right. Or overhydrated when it's high. That's right. <laughs> All right. So let's go through each one of them. So we have okay. C first, which is the cold skin. Clammy. Right, cold. Give them candy. Clammy. Don't, no. don't give them candy. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have H, which is hypotension. We, we talked about that a little bit first about, because you get that kind of general vasodilation. And so that will drop the blood pressure. Oliguria, why do we have decreased urinary output? Lack of perfusion. Right. That decreased perfusion to the kidneys. Rapid, shallow breathing. We don't have enough oxygen to perfuse our tissues and the body's trying hard to breathe faster. That's right. Yeah. And then drowsiness or confusion, kind of that mental Acidotic. Those acidotic states, they are, mm -hmm. they are not the sharpest at their sharpest. No, they're not. All right. So then we have item. I, again, that irritability, mental status changes. Um, tachycardia. Where are we tachycardic? That's the heart trying to compensate as a diva. It's a diva. <laughs> no matter what happens in the body, it's tacking along. There's only a few situations where you're bradycardic. That's right. And then we have our elevated or reduced um, CBP. Normal. Um, What's normal? Two to six. 
Okay, mm -hmm. so less than two, greater than six. Yeah. All right. Important to know you can't ever measure your CVP unless you have a central line in. So sometimes that can be confusing um, to nursing students. Like, okay, I understand what that is, but how do I know what the number is? So typically if uh, patients are this sick in, in sepsis, they are gonna have to have a central line so we can get these oppressors yeah. in. Right, they're gonna be in the ICU. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then they we're are. gonna right, have that central line for measuring the values and getting, getting constant blood pressures. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then M? MODS, or multi-organ damage or system failure. That's terrible. Yeah, trying to avoid that. I was just gonna say, isn't that what we're trying to avoid? Yes. Absolutely. That was a great hack. How do we prevent it? Now that we've talked all about it, how can we prevent sepsis, Dr. Fitzwater? Nurses are key in preventing these kinds of terrible infections. So infection control practices, we talk about it all the time, and we have a lot of evidence about it, about how we can prevent infections. So aseptic techniques that you learned, whether it's how you put gloves on or off, or how you wash your hands, or how you bathe your patient, or how you handle a catheter, Central line infections are important to prevent. So we have special, um, what do we call them? The bio, what things that we put around the insertion site. What is that? It's not biofilm. That's not no, the right thing. What's it's it called? I know what you're talking about. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking so about. So we have, <laughs> like the bio discs. Yes, like, yes. Yeah. So they're impregnated with chlorhexidine. So we're trying to keep anything from growing near the insertion site. Um, we uh, have use sterile technique when we change central line dressings, um, debriding wounds early so we can see if there's any necrotic tissue, any infection. Cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness. Oh, without a doubt. Yes, thank you, Florence. I know. All right. Treatment. I think I can handle this part. So the current treatment of septic shock and sepsis include identifying and eliminating the cause of the infection, fluid replacement, nutritional therapy, and aggressive nutritional supplementation. But it just sounds to me like, because I was never an ICU nurse. I was a CCU, ICU overflow before I went into anesthesia, but it sounds to me like this is a very busy patient. Mm -hmm. There's so much going on with them. It isn't just giving them some fluid and a little bit of TPN or something. No. This sounds like a very complex type of patient. And constant reassessment mm -hmm. on how your interventions are working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, wow, this has been really informative and we're really blessed here at Linfield to have so many faculty who are experts in so many things. So we really appreciate you coming by oh today gosh. and Huge. talking with us. So this is really fun. But we have one more hack. We right? do, yeah. we do. So let's, right. let's close with it. It's called shock. Shock. Boom, shock. Boom. So S. For shock, that's our S, support airway and breathing. So you know that's always gonna be important. We wanna make sure they're breathing and supporting it. H, they're gonna need hemodynamic monitoring, without a doubt. So, but these people get A-lines and- Definitely, uh -huh. that's what we're talking Probably about. Central, central lines. lines. They're gonna be all wired up. All the lines. Yeah, assessing that cardiac output, perfusion status. Oh. S-H-O, oxygen and circulation. We're gonna be given oxygen, we're gonna be given fluid, we're gonna be given medications. And then circulatory, that's gonna be huge. That circulatory support, that's our pressors most of the time, our inotropes, and they're gonna be necessary to increase blood pressure to increase cardiac output. 
And then K is keep them warm. Maintain the patient's body temperature as shock can lead to hypothermia. So we're gonna to wanna to use warming blankets and keep the patient covered. Shock, shock, shock. <laughs> unless they're febrile. Well, unless they're febrile. <laughs> Don't make it complicated. Sorry, I'm sorry, I gotta. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. It's been fabulous to have you here, Dr. Fitzwater. We are so appreciative for you uh, joining us today. And so just quick, quick recaps of our hacks so that they stick in your brain. We have cord item for those signs and symptoms of shock. So cord is C, cold skin, H, hypotension, O, oliguria, R, rapid shallow breathing, and D, drowsiness and item, irritability, tachycardia, elevated or reduced CBP, and mods. And then our second hack, shock, which is what you think of when you're thinking about management of shock in general. We have S, support airway breathing, H, hemodynamic monitoring, O, oxygenation, C, circulation support, and K, keep them warm. All right, all right. All right, folks, let's wrap this puppy up. This is Dr. Z signing out. This is Dr. D signing out. This is Dr. Fitzwater. Be alert for signs of shock. Love it. Love it. And you know what they say. Don't be afraid of the water. Don't stay in the shallow end. Just, Just jump, jump on, on in and take a deeper dive. dive. Woo -hoo 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 -hoo.